your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, Welcome aboard. What famous Canadian would you associate with an activity that increases your flexibility, strengthens your muscles, centers your thoughts, relaxes, and calms you? And he was a magician. Okay, let me rephrase that. What famous Canadian magician would you associate with an activity that increases your flexibility, strengthens your muscles, centers your thoughts, and relaxes and calms you? If you know the answer to that, you can text us at 514-800 or call 514-790-0800. I'm Joe Schwartz, and I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society with a mandate of demystifying science for the public and, of course, our students as well. On Sunday afternoons, I sit here for an hour chatting with you about interesting happenings in the world of science and trying to demystify some of it. <clears throat> As many of you probably know, I'm also a fan of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, I think many, many chemists are, because Sherlock Holmes, of course, is well known for his chemical aptitudes and for his reasoning ability. One of my favorite Sherlock Holmes stories is The Hound of the Baskervilles. The hound had fire bursting from its mouth, its eyes glowed with a smoldering glare, and its muzzle and hackles and dewlap were outlined in a flickering flame. Well, that doesn't sound like an ordinary hound, does it? Well, that's the way that uh, the hound was described in the Sherlock Holmes story, in the Hound of the, uh, of the Baskervilles. And it didn't take long for Sherlock Holmes to come to the conclusion that the hound's face had been painted with phosphorus. <clears throat> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was Holmes's creator, was a physician, and he was certainly knowledgeable about phosphorus. Uh, we have to give him, though, a bit of poetic license here, uh, because phosphorus burns the skin very readily. It's also very toxic when absorbed. Very unlikely that a dog would be prowling around the moor unaffected by this fiery anointment. And also, I think it would not be easy to apply phosphorus to the face of, of, the, of the animal because phosphorus is not soluble in water at all. So you'd have to find some sort of solvent in which it's soluble. And when that solvent evaporated, the phosphorus would be left behind. Oh, things like alcohol, benzene, some vegetable oils, and especially carbon disulfide work as a solvent for phosphorus. But Holmes made a point of having noted that there was no smell, and any of these would have been certainly associated with some sort of uh, aroma. But the history of phosphorus is very interesting, and it takes us back to 1669, Hamburg, Germany. And it was there that an alchemist by the name of Hennig Brand, who was searching for the philosopher's stone, happened to accidentally discover phosphorus. Well, the philosopher's stone was this uh, legendary substance that had the ability to turn base metals into gold. Now, today, of course, we know that this kind of transmutation is, is, is not possible except in nuclear reactions. But of course, back then, they didn't know anything about elements, compounds, 
and uh, it's impossible that one substance could be transmuted into another. And Brand was taken by the color of urine because to him it looked like a suspension of gold. And he thought that maybe the secret of longevity lay in uh, substances that were found in the body. And he thought that gold was one of these because after all, gold was immortal. It didn't rust. It seemed to last forever. And he thought that some of the body's gold was being released in, in urine. And that uh, sort of over time, we were kind of peeing away our health. So he decided to investigate urine to see what secret it held. What did he do? He collected a large batch of urine and he began to boil it down. And as the water evaporated and the sun had gone down, he noticed that the residue glowed in the dark. He thought he had discovered the Philosopher's Stone, the magical substance that could convert one material into another. He hadn't but he had accidentally come upon phosphorus. He didn't really know what to do with it, but he decided that it was the best idea to keep this discovery secret until he could figure out a way how to make money with it. Well, unfortunately, uh, his experiments of trying to turn base metals into gold with, with phosphorus were not successful, and he began to run out of money. He had a fair bit of money at the beginning because he had married a lady who came with a large dowry. But pretty soon, he spent all of this money on his researchers. And he was not shy about showing uh, his discovery around the city. And uh, people in Hamburg saw this amazing thing that glowed in the dark, although he never told anyone exactly how he came by it. But uh, two other alchemists, Johann Kunkel and Daniel Kraft heard about this, and they came to Hamburg. And by this time, um, Brand was running out of money, and uh, he negotiated a sale of his phosphorus uh, with one of these alchemists, Kraft, and he decided that um, this was his money-making opportunity. He sold his phosphorus and also agreed to supply Kraft with it. Well, Kraft was uh, skeptical about this stuff being the Philosopher's Stone, but he did have an idea about how to make gold with phosphorus. He would travel around Europe and charge the rich and famous for demonstrations of the miraculous properties of this stuff, and it worked. And audiences were really keen to see the substance that glowed in the dark and then spontaneously burst into flame. And in 1677, Kraft was invited to give a demonstration in London to the Royal Society, and that was a very interesting institution. Uh, it had been fostered by King Charles II, who had established it to promote the study of science. And they had uh, regular meetings talk, to talk about science, and one of the members was Robert Boyle. Robert Boyle is, is regarded as one of the fathers of, of uh, modern chemistry, and he was totally intrigued when Kraft took a piece of paper and he dipped his finger into, uh, into a bit of melted phosphorus and proceeded to write the word domini, God on a sheet of paper, and the letters glowed. And that so impressed Boyle that he began a systematic investigation of the properties of phosphorus. And um, that was an endeavor that many regard as the turning point between the mysticism of alchemy and the science of chemistry. And one of the first fruits of that science was the discovery of the phosphorus match. 
It contained a bit of sulfur as fuel, some potassium chlorate, which releases oxygen, which you need for combustion, and phosphorus as an igniter. And the head of this match was covered with glue, and the glue was rubbed away when the match was struck. That exposed the phosphorus to the air. That caught fire and ignited the sulfur in the match, and the flame kept going because of the potassium chlorate's ability to release oxygen. Well, this was a very, very important finding because before that time, it was hard to make a fire. You had to have some kindling and a flintstone, and it was very laborious. But the phosphorus match made it all interesting. But when phosphorus burns, it produces a white smoke of phosphorus pentoxide. And by the time the First World War rolled around, this was used to uh, make smoke screens to hide uh, battalions that were uh, getting into battle. And then in the Second World War, uh, phosphorus bombs were introduced, and these spewed molten phosphorus, setting fire to buildings and to people. In July of 1943, Allied bombers dropped thousands of phosphorus bombs on Hamburg, triggering a firestorm that destroyed the city. Ironically, it was the city where Hennig Brandt had discovered what some have called the devil's element back in 1669. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We will be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show, on CJAD 800. I had posed a question about uh, a Canadian magician who became uh, associated with an activity that increases your flexibility, strengthens your muscles, centers your thoughts, and relaxes and calms you. Question was, who was that magician? And uh, maybe Michael has an answer. Hi, Michael. Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Always listen to your show, enjoy it, and your column in the Gazette as well. Thank you. Uh, the first name that popped into my mind was Kreskin. Uh no, Kreskin's not Canadian to start with. Oh, okay. No, Kreskin is uh, American. Uh, he did do a show out of Montreal yeah. uh, way back in the 1960s out of the old CFCF TV studios on Ogilvy Street. And uh, he was uh, a mind reader and a magician. Uh, but no, he was not associated with the activity that I, I described. And he was not, not Canadian. Okay, I'm sure I'll re remember the answer as soon as you say it. <laughs> I think so, because yeah. he probably is the most famous Canadian magician uh, ever. Uh, okay. Ravine, Ravine was not Canadian. No, Ravine was not. Ravine was and, Australian. And Magic Tom. Uh, Magic Tom, Tom was Canadian. He yeah. was Canadian. He wasn't as famous as the one that... Magic, uh, Magic Tom I knew quite well. Uh he uh, he used to do some magic in a store that was on St. Catherine Street called the Trenatorium. Uh, some of our more senior listeners will remember that. Uh, it was a, a hobby store where they sold uh, electric trains. And uh, I was into electric trains when I was young. So I would uh, regularly visit the Trenatorium to buy uh, equipment for my Triang set. And uh, Magic Tom would be there on Saturday afternoons doing magic. Uh, he would also be sometimes at Piazza Tommaso. Do you remember that by any chance? Yes, and I do I vaguely recall being there once. Yeah, Piazza Tommaso was on Dicari uh, around Jean Talon. It was quite well known. 
and he also would perform there. Magic Tom was a very, very good magician. Uh, he really was, but he's not the one that we are looking for. Enjoyed it, and uh, it was very uh, helpful for kids to learn about magic and so on and so forth. Oh, absolutely. It, it's one of the uh, best ways to, to um, develop hand skills and also rational thinking. Because, exactly. uh, of course, magicians just pretend that things are done outside the realm of nature. He's but, almost uh, as good at encouraging rational thinking as you are. Uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> Magic Tom is no longer with right. us. Uh, but, neither, actually, is the magician that we're looking for. So that's okay, another I'll, clue. I'll be eagerly awaiting the answer. Okay. Thank you, So Dr. we'll see if someone else can uh, come up with, with that answer. Uh, in the meantime, you know what? Let, let, me, let me pose a... Uh, uh, Another uh, question for uh, for you guys out there while you're thinking about the uh, uh, Canadian magician. Why is there a red stripe on a barber's pole? Why is there a red stripe on a barber's pole? That should be a little bit uh, easier to uh, to answer. Okay, well, while we're waiting for you to uh, see if you can get some information on, on, on that, let me talk a little bit about bath salts or vacuum fresheners or plant foods. Well, these seem to be innocuous enough. Uh, you can pick them up at some gas stations, some convenience stores, garden supply shops. You can even order them on the internet. Except that the contents may not be what the label suggests. These bath salts and plant food, for those in the know, are code names for synthetic cathinones, substances that can be ingested, inhaled, or smoked for stimulant effects very similar to amphetamines. Synthetic cathinones are central nervous system stimulants, chemically similar to cathinone, a compound that occurs naturally in a plant known as CAT, K-H-A-T. Cathinone itself is a controlled substance and possession is illegal, but synthetic derivatives are in sort of a legal limbo because they have not been specifically listed as being illegal. That doesn't mean they don't present a danger. These cathinone analogs can raise blood pressure, cause an increased heart rate, trigger hallucinations, agitation, delusions. Current drug screens do not detect cathinol derivatives, and while tests to detect them can, de can be developed, clandestine chemists always seem to be one step ahead. When attention focuses on a synthetic cathinol that has been identified and warnings from regulatory authorities start to circulate about it, the clever crooks just make a new derivative that isn't illegal because it hasn't previously existed. In any case, legal action is difficult because the products are marketed as not for human consumption. Of course, those in the know are not buying bat salts to sprinkle into their bath or plant food to fertilize their tomatoes. They are looking to fertilize their euphoria. People who mess around with synthetic cathinols generally know that illegal substances can trigger adverse effects and realize that they are taking a risk. But nobody is likely to accidentally ingest a synthetic cathinone that masquerades as a bath salt. People who purchase what they think are actual bath salts are not going to taste them. But adding undeclared illegal substances to products that are meant to be ingested is quite another story, and it happens. The dietary supplement industry in North America is huge, with annual sales of some $30 billion. The marketplace in this area is very competitive, and some unethical manufacturers try to get a step up on the competition by including drugs that are either illegal or are supposed to be available only by prescription. For example, 
so-called natural weight loss products have been found to contain fenfluramine, an appetite suppressant that was removed from the market because of side effects, or cybutramine, which is a prescription weight loss drug. Some bodybuilding supplements may contain illegal steroids, and sex enhancement products may be fortified with Viagra-like drugs, while arthritis remedies may be spiked with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. All of these can produce unexpected and possibly dangerous side effects. For the vast majority of dietary supplements, the only risk is an overdose of hype. But the public should be aware of the fact that so-called natural health products are not subject to the same type of regulation and scrutiny as prescription drugs, and that many cases of adulteration may go undetected. And you should be aware of the danger with these so-called bath salts, which are not bath salts at all, but they are concoctions that are supposed to create euphoria, and unfortunately, they come with a big dose of danger. All right, uh, so we're still looking for the Canadian magician who is associated with an ancient physical and spiritual discipline and branch of philosophy that increases your flexibility, strengthens your muscles, centers your thoughts, relaxes, and calms you. Which Canadian magician are we talking about? And the second question that I flung out there was uh, a more simple one. Why does the barber pole have a red stripe on it? You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show <clears throat> on CJAD 800. Let me remind you that you can sign up for our weekly news digest that will not only inform you, but entertain you as well. You just go to our website, which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. There's lots of fascinating stuff there, and that also is the place where you go to sign up for the newsletter that will appear at 6 a.m. every Saturday morning in your inbox so that you can be uh, entertained all of Saturday. All right, the name of the magician that I was asking for, who was uh, into a, a type of practice that I mentioned increases flexibility, strengthens your muscles, cent centers your thoughts, relaxes, and calms you. Okay, let me go to Terry. Hi, Terry. Hello. Hello, Dr. Joe. Hi. Hi. Who, who was that magician? Well, I'm going to guess that it's a fellow from my hometown, uh, Doug Henning. It certainly is. Certainly is. You come from Winnipeg. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We call it Winterpeg. Yes, uh, <laughs> and I know why. I have, <laughs> I've been there in winter, so I, I can appreciate that. Yeah, uh, and what is the practice that he was into that I was describing? Uh, that I wouldn't know. That was yoga. Okay. I was describing yoga. Yoga okay. is the practice that increases flexibility, strengthens your muscles, centers your thoughts, relaxes, and calms you. 
and it has all kinds of physical benefits. I mean, you know, we're learning a lot more about yoga. It can relieve back pain. It can relieve stress, relieve anxiety, uh, a lot of good stuff, even beneficial for arthritis. However, Doug was into it in somewhat of a different way because he thought that uh, the ultimate yogic practice was yogic flying, that if you learned how to meditate well enough, you could actually levitate yourself. Now, this was really bizarre coming from a magician because magicians, of course, are actors on the stage who pretend that what they are doing is done by natural means, but of course there's, or, or by supernatural means, but there's always some natural explanation. Of course, everything is done according to scientific principles. So it is very bizarre that near the end of his, uh, his life, Doug uh, kind of went astray and started to believe in, in uh, what he thought was real magic. I mean, this was very confusing to all of his fans because, uh, of course, he was such a good magician. He knew the ins and outs of all the tricks, and how could all of a sudden he start believing that you could actually uh, levitate? So anyway, um, uh, he was uh, a, a really, really uh, excellent performer, and I really liked the way that he, he performed magic. It was different from most other magicians because he actually, you know, seemed to be amazed at what he was doing. He was, he kind of was befuddled by it as if it was, you know, happening for real. Uh, well, of course, obviously he knew exactly how it was happening. And he had these colorful costumes and colorful stage. And I saw him on Broadway in a show called The Magic Show, which was just brilliant, just brilliant. And uh, unfortunately, Doug died at a very young age. He died at the age of 52, just a few months after having been diagnosed with liver cancer. And um, he, by that time, he had left magic. He had become a politician in the natural law party. And uh, he actually believed that, that you know, if you um, just uh, meditated hard enough, you could actually levitate. So that was kind of bizarre. And I, I don't even like to talk about that aspect of his life. But the first 51 years, you know, are quite different, and he was just a, a brilliant magician. So I, I like to remember Duck Henning. And, of course, you can still watch him on, on YouTube. Uh, just put Duck Henning YouTube, and you will see some very, very clever, uh, entertaining performances from the greatest Canadian magician who ever— uh, well, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't say that, uh, because probably the greatest Canadian magician who ever lived was Di Vernon. But Di Vernon was a— different kind of magician. Uh, most people will not have heard of him because his specialty was close-up. Uh, so he didn't perform elaborate stage shows. He mostly entertained at the Magic Castle in um, Los Angeles. Uh, but uh, he is, uh, in magic circles, he is noted as the um, probably the, the best sleight-of-hand artist uh, whoever was. Okay, so thanks very much for answering my question about uh, Doug Henning. And uh, uh, now I think we still have the uh, question out there about the, uh, uh, the reason that the barber pole has a red stripe on it. So let's see. Uh, Gary? Yes. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Uh, yeah, I believe that's the same story that was going around for a long time. Many years ago when they used to have or believed in that time of bloodletting, what would happen is there wasn't doctors in all the small towns but there was always barbers, and since barbers had the sharpest and the cleanest instruments, they seemed to be the one. And I understood that the red and the blue vein uh, in the, represented the vein and artery in the arm, and the circle was the blood running down around the arm as it dripped into a pot they put on the floor for bloodletting to get rid of, uh, well, they believed at that time to get rid of diseases and that 
it would come out and you drain the blood, you'd get rid of the disease. Yes, you're basically right. It, the, the red did represent blood. And barber surgeons, as they were called, were known as early as 1000 AD. And then uh, in 1540, barber surgeons and academic surgeons formed a guild. But this is where it becomes a bit more interesting because barbers displayed blue and white poles and could not do advanced surgery, but they could pull teeth and bleed patients. And academic surgeons had poles with red and white stripes, were not allowed to cut hair or shave clients, but they could do surgery. So there were the two kinds of barber surgeons, the academic ones and uh, the ones that were uh, less well trained. But you're quite right that the red stripe was uh, representative of, of blood. So it's interesting. And of course, that tradition still has been maintained, although I think we no longer have barbers. We have hairstylists. And what's the difference between a barber and a hairstylist? Yeah, yeah. About $20. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay, I, I, Dr. Joe, I have a question. Yeah. Why the blue line as well? Well, the, the, the blue line, uh, I mean, some people say that it represents uh, veins. I, I can't really find any uh, documentation uh, for that. I think the, the blue was put in there to distinguish the, the academic surgeons from the barber surgeons. The academic and, surgeons had red and white? Is that what you're saying? The academic surgeons, uh, uh, the, the barbers displayed blue and white on, on their pole, and they could not do advanced surgery, uh, and the academic surgeons had the red and white. I see. But so, the blue wasn't related to a vein, like the deoxygenated blood. Is I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, okay. Just curious. Yeah. Anyway, so now we know what, what the red represented, and, of course, it was, uh, it was blood. So, you know, history gives us some interesting things. And bleeding, I mean, that, of course, was thought to be therapeutic. Uh, it was believed that uh, if you were sick, uh, it was because you had some bad stuff floating around in your blood. And uh, the way to solve this problem was to start draining the blood. And uh, heavens knows how many poor patients were done away by being bled to death. And the most famous one was probably George Washington. Uh, George Washington didn't really die from any sort of disease. He died from the blood uh, loss that was due to you know, the doctors just continually uh, draining him. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll take our last break and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, you've been very good at answering the questions, so I have one that perhaps is a little bit tougher. What is the connection between jet engines and mineral sunscreens? So I'm looking for the connection between jet engines and mineral sunscreens. If you know the answer, you can text 514-800 or call us at 514-790-0800. I think we still have someone on the line. Let's go to the line. Hi, welcome. Hello. 
Well, I guess that was someone who had the answer and uh, and hung up. Okay. Uh, let me tell you what I think is an interesting story. And it takes us back to 1884. A crowd that gathered at St. James Hall in London on that November evening was not your usual concert audience. Many of the seats were occupied by scientists who had been invited to witness the effects of an invention that was claimed to have, quote, the most wonderful results upon the throat and lungs and would also extend the range of the voice, making the notes full and rich. Dr. Carter Moffat, professor of chemistry in Glasgow, was set to introduce his ammonia phone, a device he had been working on for years and was said to be a triumph of chemical science. Since childhood, Moffat had been interested in improving the speaking and singing voice since his own was weak. So he uh, decided to do something about it. As he described it, his voice was of very poor quality and almost destitute of intonation. In order to improve it, he carried out experiments inhaling numerous gases and partook of various chemical solids and fluids. This had set the stage for his discovery. The concert was organized by Miss Carlingford, a young vocalist who had garnered some fame with her performances in Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. She now wished to publicly recognize the benefit she and many of her professional friends had derived from the use of the instrument. During a break in the performance, Dr. Carter stepped to the podium and delivered a lecture on how he had developed the instrument after wondering why Italian singers had such golden tones. On a professional visit to Italy, he claimed to have noted that the air had a different quality, prompting him to examine the air and dew in various locations around the country. He came to the conclusion that Italian air had unusually high levels of hydrogen peroxide and ammonia that he claimed were the result of volcanic activity. A curiosity here is that at the time there was no way that trace quantities of these chemicals in air could have been identified. Moffat never did describe his experiments, but before long he had designed his ammonia phone, a flute-like tube containing an absorbent material saturated with hydrogen peroxide at one end and ammonia at the other. There was a mouthpiece at the center through which a current of air could be drawn into the lungs. After months of use, the instrument could be sent to the manufacturer to be recharged. Volunteers from the audience were asked to speak in a natural voice and then inhale the artificial Italianized air. Accounts claimed that the voices were louder and had an improved timbre. A choir selected from the audience was asked to sing before and after inhaling from the ammonia phone, with results pronounced by the local press and music critics to be remarkable and conclusive. Because of the improvement of vocal tone, the ammonia phone was recommended for public speakers, parliamentary men, schoolmasters, and clergymen. Moffat licensed the production of the ammonia phone to the medical battery company that geared up the advertising, even commissioning an ammonia phone song that told of the plight of a young man who wanted to propose to his sweetheart but had lost his voice. Ah, well for him and for the fair, he'd heard that pure Italian air might be inhaled, imparting tone through Moffat's famed ammonia phone. 
Apparently, people did not wonder why they couldn't just inhale ammonia and hydrogen peroxide from a bottle instead of forking out a small fortune for the ammonia phone. The device claimed to do more than just cultivate voice by chemical means. Throat and chest diseases such as asthma, bronchitis, cough, deafness from colds, and even sleeplessness would succumb to its powers. Interestingly, another contraption sold by the same company had a similar promise. That was Dr. Carter Moffat's cool featherweight electric body belt. Stop taking poisonous drugs, the ads urged. Instead, wear the electric belt and say goodbye to indigestion, liver torpidity, internal weakness, gout, sciatica, sleeplessness, melancholia, palpitation, and other baffling ailments. Great for nervous depression and brain overwork. It would even restore the lost healthy complexion. Should be worn by all because its electricity is absorbed by the system. No vinegar or other acids need to be used. It removes morbid and impure matters from the blood. Oh, and there were testimonials galore. Newspapers described the ammonia phone and the uh, electric belt as inventions that would change history. But apparently the public had doubts because after a few years, uh, the ammonia phone faded from the marketplace. But nevertheless, it is an interesting little bit of, uh, of history. Okay, well, I had asked a question about the relationship between jet engines and uh, chemical or mineral sunscreens. And maybe, maybe Mark has an answer to that. I don't have an answer. I, 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 I would say kerosene, but that's not, that's not why I called you, Dr. Joe. How are you? All right. Dr. Joe, can I ask you a question? What is the difference between stainless steel knives and then when you hear surgical steel, what is that composed of, surgical steel? It's, it's the uh, amount of chromium that is blended with the iron. Uh, stainless steel is, is uh, an alloy of usually iron uh, and nickel and sometimes chromium. And uh, iron, of course, just by itself rusts. But when you alloy it with other metals, that prevents it from, from rusting. And also, depending on how much uh, uh, chromium and how much nickel you blend with it, uh, you can sharpen it more or less. So it's just a question of amounts of the different metals that are alloyed together. Uh, surgical steel, uh, which obviously can be made very, very sharp, has a different amount of nickel and chromium than the stainless steel that is used in your knives in your kitchen drawer. That would be like a scalpel or things like that? Yes, right, a scalpel. Yeah, exactly. A scalpel wow. is made of surgical steel. Well, thanks a lot, Dr. Joe. You answered my question, and God bless you, and have a nice day. Thank you. Take care, man. Okay. Uh, let's go to Sheila. Hi, Sheila. Sheila thought she had the answers to that question, but apparently not. And you know what? It seems that, that we are not going to get an answer to that question. So we will do what I rarely do. We will leave it hang until next week. Uh, let me just repeat it. Uh, I was asking for what the connection is between uh, what we call mineral sunscreens. Uh, mineral sunscreens are the ones that reflect light as opposed to the chemical sunscreens, which actually absorb ultraviolet light and are somewhat controversial. So the question is the link between the mineral sunscreens and jet engines. You would not think that there is an obvious link. Uh, maybe not so obvious, but there is a very interesting and very strong link. Well, that is it. We have once again run out of time. Uh, you've been listening to the 
Dr. Joe show, and uh, we will tantalize you with more interesting stuff next week. But until we meet again, same time, same station next week, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>